You know, my, my daughter, we have five daughters. Our oldest has a uh, 2015 Toyota Corolla that uh, we bought a couple years ago that she's enjoying and having fun with. Um, for some reason, the, probably the, the kind of dealer we bought it from, the key that starts the car does not open the driver's side door. I'm not sure why. Any, anybody who might know why, we probably need to WD-40 it or go to a locksmith. But um, So she is highly dependent upon her little remote thing that unlocks that car door. And um, found out uh, a couple weeks ago that one of her two key things had died. And so she was down to one of those things. And, um, and then she lost the working one. And so she was having to leave her car unlocked in order to get in. Um, thankfully, we were able to replace the battery in the one. And then eventually she found the other one. And so she's back in business. But um, the, the button that she normally pushes usually does something, right? That's how buttons work. You push the button, something happens, usually something good that you want to happen, like your car locks or unlocks. And, uh, and it's a, a bad thing when a button doesn't work, except, I would say, when it's our buttons. When people push our buttons, something often happens, something that is usually not good. And so, what I hope that we can think about tonight is how to, how to rewire our buttons such that when they get pushed, um, nothing happens or something good happens instead because the Bible actually calls that love. You know, we've been considering, as Joe mentioned, the, the priority and the characteristics of biblical love. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, we've already seen in verse 4 that love is patient. Love remains tranquil when waiting on the Lord or waiting on others, and it, it bears up under trial without complaint. It's, it's long-suffering. We've seen that love is kind. It, it has a tender concern for others and actively seeks to do good to them. We've seen that love does not brag, that it's not arrogant, that love is not consumed with elevating self, and we've seen that love does not act unbecomingly, that it's not rude, but it, it behaves appropriately or with consideration for others that are around us. And so tonight we continue in verse 5. We're actually going to look at two characteristics where it continues. It says, love does not seek its own and is not provoked. Love does not seek its own. Now that, in many ways, as you hear that, resonates with what you think of when you think of love. This is a core biblical idea that love does not seek its own. Now, you'll notice it doesn't say its own what. We'll talk a little more about this in a while. I think that's partially because you can fill in the blank with anything. It doesn't seek its own gain or whatever. This is a, 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 not a new idea in the book. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, Paul said, Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. 1 Corinthians 10.33 said, Just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. The ESV translates it this way. It says it does not insist on its own way. The idea that love is not selfish, but it's self-serving, and uh, or not self-serving, but self-sacrificing for others. And, and then we see that love is not provoked. You know, it's appropriate that we consider these two together tonight. John MacArthur writes this. He says, being provoked 
is the other side of seeking one's own way. The person who is intent on having his own way is easily provoked, easily angered. So in some ways, these are two sides of, of the same coin. And, and so in the interest of time tonight, we're going to really focus kind of on the second, structuring our thoughts around that, but we'll consider the first in that context. So let's consider first the question, what does it mean that love is not provoked? When we say love is not provoked, when Paul writes that, what does he mean and, and also what does he not mean? You know, the word itself means what we think it means, to incite or to stir up someone. You know, that idea that I used in, my, in, the, in the intro of having your buttons pushed, that's what comes to my mind when I think of being provoked. It's like, okay, something happens and it kind of, you know, your blood pressure starts to boil a little bit. Maybe you can feel your face turning a little bit red. You're like, Ugh. You're incited or stirred up to something. Now, the reality is it's not always wrong to be provoked. This word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, often for Israel provoking God, that God himself is provoked by the rebellion and sin of others. So God is at times rightly provoked. Jesus, while he was on earth, he was periodically provoked. You may remember in John chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, when uh, he saw those who were changing money in the temple and he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers. He, he was provoked to action. He was provoked to anger in that moment. Or in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says, looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to a man, stretch out your hand and his hand was restored. This word used of Paul in Acts 17, 16, when he was in Athens. And it says, while he was waiting at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So Paul's walking around the city. He sees the idolatry that is rampant, and he is provoked within him. There is a righteous anger that is caused within him. So it's not that love will never be provoked. That's not what Paul is saying here. In fact, I think sometimes it is because of our love that we will be provoked. You think about Jesus. It was his love for the Father as he looked at what was happening in the temple that caused him to be provoked to anger and to go turn over the money changers. It, it, it says that zeal for his house will consume him. It was his love for the Father and for the worship of the Father. Paul's love for God caused him to be provoked by the idols. And, and certainly there are times where you and I are rightly provoked. Christian and I watched that movie that came out a little while ago, uh, The Sound of Freedom, that's about child, traf uh, child trafficking. And, um, you know, we were sobered and disgusted and we were provoked to anger as we saw what, what is happening in our world. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, we'll get there, says love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. I think at times it is rightly provoked by it. But Paul's point here is, is not about that kind of being provoked. His point here is about not being wrongly or selfishly provoked to anger or irritation. You, you know the difference, I think. You may not always. There may be a few times in life where you're like, I'm not sure if this is righteous anger. But that's generally the exception, I think, for us. We, we should not be provoked selfishly. 
because of how others treat us or affect us. It's, it's the clear negative of this idea that leads to one Greek scholar defining this uh, idea in, in this verse being provoked here as irritation or sharpness of spirit. If you have a, an English Standard Version, it's translated, love is not irritable. Right? God is not irritable when he's provoked, but we can be just rubbed wrong by others in a way that is not loving. Proverbs 14, 17 says, Sometimes this leads to outbursts. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Sometimes someone who is easily provoked is easily angered. They're quick-tempered. They're like a ticking time bomb that goes off. Sometimes that provocation doesn't lead to outbursts of anger. It's more just irritation. One commentator translates it this way, love is not cantankerous. You might think of somebody that you know who, who would be characterized in that way. That's not love. It's not easy to push your buttons if you are characterized by love. But the reality is that's easier said than done, right? It's easy to talk about that, to say, yeah, we shouldn't be provoked. But then you go home tonight, and you are trying to get your kids to bed, and, and someone will push a button of yours. And so let's consider a second question. Why are we often wrongly provoked? You know, if you're like me, the first place you probably would start is, A, there, the common circumstances. What are the circumstances in which we are often wrongly provoked. You know, it probably doesn't happen all the time, but there's something that hits a nerve in us sometimes that leads us in, in that direction. I, I think there's a lot of times where that can happen, but two that I would mention is one is when we are hurt by someone. When someone does something to us that is wrong or hurtful, or when we are not treated by someone, how we think we deserve or how we desire to be treated, sometimes in a, in a real way that is legitimate hurt, sinful on the other person's part, sometimes in more of a, a perceived way, maybe they did not actually intend to hurt us, but what they did, we perceived it in that manner. When we are hurt, it's very easy to be provoked to a response that maybe we wouldn't have done had we been carefully calculating how we would respond. We'll talk a little more about that in a bit when we consider the example of Christ. But when we're hurt, it's easy to be provoked. And it's easy to think of that as a just response because something was wrong, but the scriptures warn us not to respond ourselves in those seasons, at least generally. A second circumstance that's common is when we are hindered. When we don't get what we want, when we aren't given the things that we desire, or we're hindered from getting or having something we desire. Again, maybe something tangible, maybe an object or a, a piece of food. Maybe you wanted the last cookie or Oreo and somebody else took it. Maybe you want the last biggest story book, Bible storybook or whatever it's called and somebody else took it, you were hindered from getting what you wanted. Maybe not something tangible like that, but more like a quiet room or a clean house, but maybe something less tangible, more to be treated a certain way with respect or to be cherished or, or whatever it is that you 
desired and someone else kept you from it or they did not give it to you. You know, the reality is it's easy to focus here on our circumstances or on what others have done or not done that affects us. And to answer the question, why are we often wrongly provoked? Well, it's because of what other people do or don't do to us. It's because of our circumstances. Because other people push our buttons, like our kids or our spouse or a coworker, or a boss or an in-law or someone else. And, and it is true that it is possible to sinfully provoke others. You, you are hopefully familiar with Ephesians 6.4 that says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So we can wrongly provoke someone else, which does mean others can also wrongly provoke us. So when we provoke someone, we should own that, that we've contributed, we should take responsibility, we should be quick to humble ourselves and acknowledge that. But because we know you shouldn't provoke others, it's easy to justify ourselves when we are provoked because someone else has done something to us, oftentimes something that's legitimately wrong. Yeah, not always. Sometimes it's just a misunderstanding or a perception or judging others' motives. But oftentimes there's real sin on the part of someone else against us. You know, your child really was disrespectful or your sister did take something that belongs to you without asking or your boss was unjust and how he handled a promotion or a bonus, or your spouse was selfish in the use of their time or money in a way that affected you. And so we justify being provoked and we blame others. I wouldn't have responded that way if they hadn't done this. If you were just more loving, I'd have responded better. We convince ourselves that we're a helpless victim. I couldn't have responded any other way. But you know, that's what happens, right? Buttons get pushed and something happens. And if you don't push my buttons, that won't happen. But that's not biblical thinking. That's not the way love thinks. Here in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says love is not provoked. It doesn't say love doesn't provoke. That, that would be true also. But here the focus is love is not provoked. Regardless of what others do or don't do, we don't have to be and ought not be wrongly and sinfully provoked, which leads us to think not so much about the common circumstances, but about the core issue. The core issue. Why is it that we are provoked? It's not because of others. It's not because of our circumstances. It's because of our own heart, which is what Paul wrote just before this when he says love does not seek its own. You see, so often we're provoked because we are not loving, we are seeking our own instead, and the result of that is someone does something that gets in the way of that, and we respond with irritation or anger. Love does not seek its own. As I mentioned, he doesn't fill out that idea. He doesn't finish that sentence, his own what? Well, I think it could be anything, Your, his own desires, his own glory, its own respect, its own pleasure. Love is not focused on self. And too often it's those desires that we have that lead to anger or conflict. Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. It's a text we've looked at before in, in foundations, but it's so foundational to how we think about and understand 
conflict and, and in relationships. He says in verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? In our context, we could think about it as what is the source of us being provoked to, to anger or irritation with someone else? It's not the source, what? That person. No, he says it's not the source, your pleasures, your desires is that word, that wage war in your members. He says you lust, you desire something, not sexual lust in this context necessarily, but just a strong craving. You want something really badly and you cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not, or sorry, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He says you want something, your pleasures, you have a strong desire. Again, maybe an actual object, a cookie, a TV remote, whatever. Maybe a desire to be treated a certain way, addressed with respect or tenderness. Maybe a certain set of circumstances. I want peace and quiet, a clean home, whatever. And someone else is standing between you and what you want. Maybe they have it and they're withholding it from you. This happens not so much with Christy and I at our house, but we have daughters. And so it's not uncommon. A very common phrase in our house is, that's my sweatshirt that you have on. Or I want the sweatshirt that's in your closet. And so there's a real object that someone is keeping us from getting. What's he say? He says, you're envious and cannot obtain. You want something someone else has and you can't get it. Perhaps they're simply the thing hindering you from getting it. They're being loud and inconsiderate and you want peace and quiet or they aren't cleaning up after themselves and you want a clean, tidy home or room. Sometimes I think they're just the innocent bystander in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're not the one who's actually keeping us from getting what we want, but we're frustrated that we aren't getting what we want and we take it out on someone else. So you respond in anger or irritation. What's the core issue? It's not just a lack of self-control, but a heart that is centered on self, on seeking your own. And therefore, you're easily provoked. Again, it's important to recognize that what we want is not always bad in and of itself. Oftentimes, it's a good thing. Clean house, that's, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Kids that talk respectfully, a husband who loves and cherishes you, on and on we could go with good things we want, but those desires can become a strong and consuming lust. I have to have this such that when we don't get it, when we're seeking our own, we will be easily provoked. You see, when we're consumed with self and so see all of life through the lens of what we want, when we are seeking our own, we will be wrongly and easily provoked. Now, the reality is seeking your own can show up in all sorts of other ways, right? It's not just that we will be easily provoked. We can be sinfully self-centered in all kinds of ways, and it will affect our relationships in all kinds of ways. James mentions that at the end of chapter 3 before he gets to this paragraph on conflict. Back in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 
So selfish ambition, seeking your own, creates all kinds of issues and leads to all kinds of sin. And it's of the devil, not of the Lord. But it will certainly lead to this disorder and this conflict towards being wrongly provoked. So we are often wrongly provoked because of our self-centeredness, our selfish ambition, the desires that we want that others are hindering us from getting. And so how do we change to be more loving? How do we change, third, to avoid being selfishly provoked? Well, again, I want you to think about the analogy I used at the beginning of, of people pushing your buttons. The solution to people pushing your buttons is not to get them to stop pushing your buttons. You would have to be dead or everyone else would have to be for that to happen, right? <laughs> Neither are good options. But what you can do is you can take the battery out so the button doesn't do anything, or you can rewire the buttons so that when the buttons are pushed, there's a different response than what has been typical. How do we do that? How do we rewire our buttons so that when they're pushed, what comes out is not being provoked, but kindness and patience and the other characteristics of love? Well, the first thing that we need to do, love does not seek its own, it seeks something else. And so we need to, A, center your life on Christ, not self. Center your life on Christ, not self. You see, love that is not centered on and seeking self seeks something, and what it should seek is the things of Christ and His glory. Colossians chapter 3 is a, a chapter that goes into how we grow and change to put off things like anger and, and, and those sins and put on things like a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, characteristics of biblical love. But it starts this way in verse 1 of Colossians 3. It says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see, we have to get self off of the throne and our hearts and life centered on self and get Christ in the center of our life. Christ and others should be our focus rather than ourself. One commentator writes this. He says, agape, the kind of love Paul is describing here, stands in opposition to all that uh, be called self-love. It is thus the direct opposite, it's an older quote, of acquisitive love. The love that's focused on acquiring things. The love that's focused on getting what I want. He says, agape seeketh not its own, but this is a self-evident consequence of the theocentric nature of Paul's idea of love. What's theocentric? It's God-centric. God at the center. Agape spells judgment on the life that centers around the ego and its interests, for when God's agape is shed abroad in a man's heart through the Holy Spirit, his life thereby gains a new center. The emphasis is transferred from his own ego to Christ. Isn't that helpful? If you are centered on self, you will be wrongly provoked when your desires are not met. But if you are centered on Christ, you will not react in such a manner to your desires, or in such a manner to your desires. Um, as you will instead be living for His. So when your kids talk disrespectfully to you, when they push that button again and again, you know, when, when they continue to do that, 
you will care about how you honor Christ and display His character more than how you're treated. You, you will care more about your kids' relationship with Christ and what their disrespect of you shows about their view of God and authority and how that is an issue in their heart than you will their treatment of you. doesn't mean you don't address it. doesn't mean you don't deal with it. doesn't mean you don't talk to them about it. But it totally transforms how and why we address it. Because it's not about us. Our life is about the Lord. So center your life on Christ, not self. Secondly, consider others more important than yourself. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Again, a familiar text, but so powerful and practical. Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What are those? Those are just the characteristics he's already addressed in 1 Corinthians 13 of, of what is the opposite of love. He says, love others. Do nothing from selfishness. Don't seek your own or from empty conceit. Don't be proud and boastful. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. When he says regard one another as more important than yourself, it's, it's not just a random thing that might happen sometime, where it's like you go through life and, oh, today I think they're really important and I'm going to serve them. It's a calculation, an intentional deduction in your head to say, I'm going to consider them, I'm going to think of them, as more important than me. You know, as you evaluate life, considering others to be more important than yourself is a huge part of how we display Christ-like love. The reality is we all naturally care for self, right? And, and that's why Paul doesn't say, don't ever do anything for yourself. We, we naturally do the things that we need. You ate dinner tonight. Probably, maybe a few of you, somebody had to say, like your spouse, hey, you really need to go eat dinner tonight. But most of us, we just go do the stuff that we need to do for us. We care for ourselves. He says, proactively care about others. Think that way about others. Don't just look out for you, but consider the interests and needs of others. If that's how you're living and someone doesn't do what you want them to do, your chief concern is not for yourself, but for others. And that will have a tremendous impact on how you respond when your buttons are pushed. How do we do that? Well, third, we need to contemplate the example of Christ. Paul goes on in Philippians 2, and he says, This is how you're to live. Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You say it's hard to live that way. It is. It's hard to think more about the needs of your kids or your spouse or other co-workers than it is yourself. How do you do that? Well, you remember that's the example of Jesus. And he goes on and he describes how Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He, he became man. He took on full humanity, not just as a man, but as a man who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the perfect picture and ultimate example of considering others' needs above his own, and it led him to the cross for you and for me. 
It's Jesus' example that fuels this in us. 1 Peter 2 helps us to see Jesus' example, especially when we are hurt by others. It says in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. And verse 22 says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Jesus was perfect. Never a time where He did anything wrong that would warrant mistreatment by others or hurt by others. And yet, verse 23 says, While being reviled, He did not revile in return. People hurling insults at Him that are totally untrue, that are the opposite of what is true about Jesus. They're pushing his buttons, and what did he do? Nothing. Well, something, but he didn't respond with reviling in return. While suffering, what did he do? He uttered no threats. They're pushing his buttons. They're trying to get a rise out of him. You can go back and read the accounts of the trial and other things. It's like any normal person would have been responding and provoked, but not Jesus. Why? Well, it says at the end of that verse, verse 23, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, which is the fourth step for us, to continue to entrust yourself to the Lord. You see, why did Jesus not feel a need to defend himself? Why did Jesus not feel a need to respond to the things that were done to him? It's because he knew there was a righteous judge that he could entrust himself to. Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. If, if others mistreat you, know that God is the righteous judge, that justice will come. It will come in one of two ways. Either that sin against you will ultimately be credited to Christ's account, just like every sin you've ever committed with, and that sinner will receive grace because of Jesus, just like you, or they will pay the penalty for that sin. Justice will be done, and God will deal with that. God will do that. That's why Romans 12, 19 and 20 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. When people push your buttons and the temptation is to respond in kind, to respond with, vengeance to respond with hurt back Romans says no just entrust yourself to the Lord recognize God is the one who's the righteous judge he will take care of that what do you do to your enemy the one who's hurt you you give them a drink if they're thirsty you give them food if they're hungry you continue to serve and meet their needs this is contrary to human nature this is contrary to what our culture says but this is biblical love it does not seek its own, and it is not provoked, not easily, wrongly, selfishly provoked. The reality is, guys, people and circumstances will push your buttons. But that doesn't have to lead to a response of irritation and anger. We can rewire our buttons or disconnect our buttons by centering our life on Christ, by considering others more important than ourselves, by contemplating the example of Christ and by continuing to entrust yourself to the Lord. And when you do that and your buttons are pushed, the result will be love. A response not of anger and irritation, of self-centered concern for how they're affecting me, 
but it will be the patience and kindness and humility that we've already been learning about in 1 Corinthians 13. It will be a response of love, and it will look like Jesus, our perfect example of one who considered others more important than himself, of one who did not seek his own and was not provoked. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this simple text. Lord, it's, it's easy to some degree to understand what Paul is saying, but it's difficult to live this way because we are so often consumed with self. Lord, forgive us for thinking that life and the world should revolve around us when it should revolve around you. Lord, help us to put aside that selfishness. Help us to center our lives on you and your glory and on doing good to others, loving them more than we love ourselves. Lord, help us to uh, be faithful, to dwell on your example and might what you have done for us, selflessly giving of yourself for us, fuel us to live in this manner. Lord, we long to be characterized by what this verse describes, not seeking our own and not easily provoked. Lord, do that work in us for your glory. And um, forgive us as we fall short, but may we spur one another on to that even now as we talk about these things together. In Christ's name, amen.